I couldn't help but think that if you're a sinner here this morning, you're at the right place, because this is where the gospel is heard, both in our music and in the word being preached to us. And I'm very grateful for the music because it tends to soften our hearts to the doctrines and the truths that are going to be preached from the word. But from a pastor's position, and Dave, you would say this too, it encourages, it excites the preacher in proclaiming the word. So I'm grateful for the music that we've been able to proclaim together with one voice. It is a privilege to have Pastor Dave McAllister with us, and it was a big help to me this week, but Dave has been here before, and I know him to be a man that is faithful to the Word of God. He is here with his parents as well, Mike and Kay, so welcome to you. It has to be a glorious moment for you to see your son preach the Word. So Dave, thank you for coming. He's going to be preaching on Psalm 116, which is a a wonderful hymn that I love as well, so I look forward to what you have for us this morning. Come and preach to us. Thank you, Monty. Thank you, Stephen. I would echo exactly what Monty just said. Uh, There's no greater primer for preaching than powerful worship. And we've essentially been led before the throne of God, worshiping him. And now we continue to worship him in the receiving of his word. I think you'd agree with me that we as human creatures are incredibly forgetful. Uh, It's always one of my greatest fears whenever I preach that I might forget my notes. And so I'll check it about six, seven, maybe 18 times. Because the last thing you want to do is show up and have nothing to say. And as I think about that in terms of our faith, The reality is if we don't deliberately find ways of reminding ourselves of who we are and even more so who God is, we're prone to simply let those realities slip from our mind and uh, slip from our memory. Like fresh logs laid on a dying fire, it's good that old truths be brought back to the forefront of our minds lest the fire of our hearts grow cold. We want our hearts to remain warm towards our Heavenly Father. And so this is one of the reasons we gather together as the people of God, is to hear the Word of God and to be reminded of who He is and all that we possess in Christ. And with that being said, I want to invite us this morning into, I'm going to go out and say it, my favorite book of the Bible, the book of Psalms. Uh, specifically Psalm 116, as a way of an introduction. Uh, The book of Psalms was originally arranged for the corporate worship of God's people as well as for their lives as individuals. And it's essentially the, the biggest book in all of the Bible. And this collection of 150 different Hebrew songs and prayers and poems, all of that has tremendous spiritual and practical use for us today as believers. It was reformer Martin Luther who said of the Psalms that they are, quote, a little Bible wherein everything contained in the entire Bible is beautifully and briefly comprehended. It might actually interest you to know that the book of Psalms is the most quoted by the authors of the New Testament. The fact that many of these Old Testament Psalms have ultimately found their way into the record of the Christian scriptures, well, that emphasizes the fact that they have, we have an incredible need for them today as the church. And so this morning, I want us to reflect upon the thoughts and words of Psalm 116. The psalm itself uh, falls under the category of descriptive praise psalms. And it it fits within a unique collection. Uh, uh, Jewish tradition actually groups together Psalm 113 through Psalm 118 into a collection known as the Egyptian Hallel, uh, Hallel being Hebrew for praise. And this group of songs was traditionally used at the annual celebration of Passover. Uh, Psalms 113 and 114 would be sung before the Passover and 115 through 118 would be sung uh, after it. And, And with regards to Psalm 116, though we don't know the author of this particular psalm, its tone and its 
language is deeply personal. In fact, uh, we were just talking about that, weren't we, Monty? All of the Psalms are, are deeply personal. It's a bit like reading somebody's journal. And though we don't know the historical context for these words, as we get into it, we soon realize that this is written by a believer who, by the intervening grace of God, had actually miraculously escaped death itself. The psalm actually answers for us two very key questions, two very practical questions. Question number one, what are the benefits of belonging to the Lord? What are the benefits of belonging to the Lord? And number two, what are to then be the subsequent behaviors of those who belong to the Lord? Uh, hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you as we walk through, walk through this wonderful portion of Scripture, because As David says in Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I want to remind us, myself included, of the blessed benefits of belonging to our beloved. I want us together as the people of God to celebrate together some of the benefits, and and we're going to look at six in particular, benefits that belong to us because we belong to him. And as we do that, I want us to also consider some of the resulting behaviors that rise out of of those wonderful benefits. And so if you are able to at this time, let me invite us to stand for the reading of our text, Psalm 116. And I will be reading from the ESV. Psalm 116. I love the Lord. Because he heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore, I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I'm your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning asking that you would continue to warm our hearts with these truths, that you would shake the cobwebs out of our mind, as it were, and remind us of all that we have in you. Lord, we are blessed because we belong to you. Lord, we pray that as your people, that you would soften our hearts to these truths, that you would encourage us if we need that, that you would admonish us if we need that, and that you would use this time in your word to exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we find every spiritual blessing and more. For it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And so as I said, we're going to look at six specific Benefits. Benefit number one, the benefit of being heard. Uh, 
Look at verse 1. The psalmist says this, I love the Lord. We often heard it said about certain people, to know him is to love him. Uh, In fact, there was that general sentiment this past Friday as we uh, honored the life of Tim Vaughn. And to know Tim, if you knew Tim, you loved him. Uh, How could you not? But with that being said, not everybody who knows of God or acknowledges his existence actually loves him. At least they don't love the version that they understand of who he is. But not so for the author of Psalm 116. This is such a beautiful opening to this psalm, this glorious confession from the psalmist. I love the Lord. I I love Jehovah. And this was obviously in keeping with the greatest commandment recorded in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, a part of the, the Hebrew Shema, the daily prayer, in which we are told you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the psalmist doing that very thing admits to it, confesses it. He declares, God, I I love you. It actually somewhat surprised me to find out in my studies this past week that the psalmist's simple statement here in verse 1, I love the Lord, this is actually repeated only one other place in the entire book of Psalms. That kind of took me back. I would think there'd be a lot more, but... The only other place we find in Psalm 118, it's, it's strikingly similar, David's own confession, in which he says, Psalm 118, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. And this is so key because this essentially is the essence of what it means to be a believer. We love the Lord. We're gathered in this place, ultimately, because we love the Lord our God. Amen? And though not perfectly, we love him more than we used to because of his work in our lives. We love the Lord our God. And we do that not just because God is working within us, but we do it because we're instructed to do it. David in Psalm 31 verse 23 instructs God's people by saying, Love the Lord, all you his saints. But why? That's the bigger question. Now we get into motivation. Why should we love God? What is it that ought to motivate such feelings? Well, the psalmist opens his song by clarifying the first specific reason for his affection for and his adoration of Jehovah. Look at verse 1 again. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. I love the Lord because... He's heard me. Having found himself up against it, the psalmist here acknowledges that God has heard every one of his earnest petitions. The Lord has paid attention to every one of his heartfelt prayers. Every one of his desperate cries for help, he knew, had reached the ear of the Almighty. This is actually one of the main causes for David's own devotion to God is repeatedly expressed in the psalms psalm 4 verse 3 david states the lord has set apart the godly for himself the lord hears when i call to him psalm 6 beginning in verse 8 david warns depart from me all you workers of evil for the lord has heard the sound of my weeping the lord has heard my plea the lord accepts my prayer Psalm 28, verse 6, David again proclaims, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. And in Psalm 65, verse 2, David actually refers to Yahweh as, quote, You who hear prayer. That is our God. That is the God we love, and that is the reason we love him. In the early morning, he hears us. In the middle of an overwhelming day, he's listening. Amidst the evening hours, late into the night, our Heavenly Father ever and always hears us as his children. In fact, come back to the psalm, Psalm 34. In verse 4, David is offering his personal testimony after being delivered from Abimelech in 1 Samuel 21. You can read of it. And David says, Psalm 34, beginning in verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. 
Uh, Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Men and women, I ask, is there anything more comforting than those truths? God hears us. That is our God. And that's, that means everything. Because as we all know, we need somebody to listen to us. Particularly when we're going through a time of hardship, we, we need to know at a heart level, I'm not alone as I go through this. As we are confronted by every human fear, every pain, every trial, we need to know somebody cares and that that one who cares expresses that care by listening. Coming back to verse 2 of our text, Psalm 116, verse 2, the psalmist continues, because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. That verb inclined, actually the idea conveyed there is that of God actually bending down to listen. And he says, because he did that, the psalmist says, because he did that, I'm resolved, I'm committed to call on him as long as I'm drawing breath. This again speaks to the importance of prayer. Our God, men and women, is a God who listens. He hears our cries. He pays attention to our pleas for help. My mind immediately goes to the prophet Jonah, who knew that. As we see from his similar sounding prayer, Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Verse 7, Jonah says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. And women, this is vastly different from every one of our false gods, every one of our human idols, which cannot hear the cries of our heart. Psalm 115, beginning in verse 2, the psalmist says, Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. But then the psalmist goes on to say in verse 4, Their idols, the idols of the unbelieving nations, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And the psalmist concludes the matter in verse 8, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And let me add, that includes all of the idols that we construct today in our own image. They're all dead. They're all mute. They're all totally unresponsive to every one of our dilemmas as human beings. No matter how loud we cry. No matter how earnestly we prostrate ourselves either physically or emotionally before them. They don't hear a single thing. But God does. When we call to him. When we turn to him. When we cry out to him. He hears us. First Peter 5, Apostle Peter says, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, don't miss this, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Peter says, because he cares for you. He cares for you. Cry out to him. He wants to hear that. And women, our God, the one true God, he hears us when we cry out to him. And he does so because he deeply and richly and lovingly cares for us as his family members. Coming back to our text in verse 3, the psalmist actually goes into greater detail as to what it originally prompted his pleas back in verse 1. 
He says in verse 3, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol. Sheol was, it, it, it basically, it was a picture of the grave. It, it, it spoke of the abode of the dead. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. If ever a person described so vividly their personal and painful trials and troubles, it's the psalmist here in Psalm 116. He says, in a sense, I have one foot here on earth and the other foot in the grave. From an earthly perspective, I I feel like I'm absolutely helpless and, and totally hopeless and would be were it not for God. Some of the phrases and images found in this psalm actually suggest that the author is possibly near the end of his life. And you certainly sense that he knows he's, he's escaped something that could have taken it from him. Look at verse 3, verse 8, verse 9, verse 15. It's all throughout this psalm. Whatever it was he faced, he, know, he knew that that could have been the end of his days here on earth. And yet, God had sovereignly preserved his life. And had done that in part because the psalmist had cried out to him. Men and women, what this portion of the text reminds us is that the Lord doesn't rescue his children from every concern and potential distress. We cry out to him and sometimes the answer is either wait or the answer at times even is no. And they call that saint home. But that being said, there are troubles in our lives even now that are driving us to the Lord as they ought to. And the Lord has allowed those things into our life so that we would be driven to him, so that we would be brought to our knees and cry out to him so that we would be reminded once again we are utterly dependent upon him. And as the storms of life wash over us and surround us, we're reminded that we have one of two responses ultimately. We can respond in fear, or as believers, we can respond in faith. And as we see here in Psalm 116, the author chooses to do the latter. Look at verse 4, continuing to unfold and unpack this benefit, the benefit of being heard. The psalmist says, verse 4, Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. God, save my life. Have you been there before? Have you... Have you cried out like that? Have you ever been up against it and you thought, this might be it. This might be the final breath I I draw. And so out of desperation, Lord, save me. I I, I don't know if I've ever been through that. Uh, I've had some sketchy moments, things I've done that I look back on, stories my wife doesn't like me to tell our son, of, of times where I willingly put myself in harm's way, but I don't. I can't remember the last time I've earnestly cried out like that. But it's good that we see this because it shows us that no matter how desperate we are, we can do that. And, and as the fire is turned up in the life of the psalmist, as he finds himself at death's door, he responds by turning to the one who could actually do something about it. In a sense, you could say he clearly understood the truths of Acts 17, verses 27 and 28, that God, quote, is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. The psalmist knew that Yahweh was the source of his life and that it was he who sovereignly sustained and preserved it. It's so easy for us to worry, and oftentimes, We worry even as believers because we have a wrong perspective. And so it's good that we be reminded of who God is. We be reminded that he indeed is our good shepherd who walks with us even through the valley of the shadow of death when life seems so uncertain. It's crucial that particularly as believers, as the people of God, that we don't begin to equate hard times with the absence of God. No, rather, it's in the valley of the shadow of death that the Lord often seems so much more personal to us. It's then that we feel that he's watching over us and protecting us. That's just one benefit. There's more. 
Benefit number one, the benefit of being heard. Benefit number two, the benefit of being cared for. Look at verse five. The psalmist gives us this power-packed, theological, theologically dense verse. Verse five, gracious is the Lord. And righteous, our God is merciful. It's like he begins to ponder who God is and he just lists attribute after attribute. And, and here we find three distinct qualities, three distinct attributes of God, all of which help us to further understand why he called upon the Lord to begin with. First, he says that the Lord is gracious, which means that God is disposed to bless us. Did you hear that? God actually desires to express kindness to us as his people. Because we deserve it? Of course not. But we don't have to twist his arm, as it were, to to get him to graciously respond to us, to, to hear our prayers and to work for our benefit. It's actually in God's character, the psalmist says, for him to pour out his favor upon us. First, he's gracious. Second, the Lord is righteous, he says, which means that God always acts in accordance with that which is right. In other words, you could say nothing that God ever does is is seedy or or sordid, which explains why he can be trusted. In fact, we can and should trust in our God and who he is far more than we trust in ourselves and our own abilities and our own character because every decision, every call that God ultimately makes, it's the right one. It's the right decision. There's times we'll go to God. There's times we'll all go to God and say, why God? We did some of that even on Friday at the funeral. Why, God? But at the end of it all, we know that the decision, God's choice, is the right one. And so we can trust in him. Third, the Lord is merciful, which means that his heart is a heart of great compassion. These are are wonderful nuances of who God is and and alone their reasons to exalt but as you bring them together just this multi-layer it 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 just it compels us to to love God as the psalmist loves him he says the Lord is merciful it means his heart's a heart of great compassion there's there's no stoicism there's no removed indifference on God's part towards us as his children Rather, there remains this ever-present, sympathetic tenderness towards us. That is our God. And when God is good, and the goodness of God is a recurrent theme in the book of Psalms. Psalm 116, verse 2, David affirms, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Psalm 34, verse 8, David urges us, O taste and see that the Lord is good. In Psalm 145, verse 9, David proclaims, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And now that looks even beyond just the family of God. No, indeed, as Psalm 119, verse 68 says, God, you are good, and you do good. And we need to be reminded of that. Because sometimes we're tempted to think God's not good. Listen, when when Satan sought to drive a wedge between God and his children in the garden, he did so in the area of God's goodness. Genesis 3, verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God knows. He doesn't want you to know. Right? God's holding out on you. He has some sort of hidden agenda. And that's no different than what he says to us, the deceiver says to us nowadays. He's holding out on you. He could do better. And women, it's it's solely because of who God is that he gives us everything that we have. Not just salvation, but blessings and rewards. That's because of who God is. And it's because of who God is that we're also kept from what we so rightly deserve as sinners, which is condemnation and punishment and hell. In 1 Kings 8.23, Solomon prays this, quote, O Lord, God of Israel, there is 
no God like you. In heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You agree? There's no God like our God. Benefit number one, the benefit of being heard. Number two, the benefit of being cared for. Number three, the benefit of being kept. The benefit of being kept. Look at verse six. And he continues. The Lord preserves the simple. Or some translations, I believe, say the foolish. Right? The, the, the fool, the, the, the one who's easily persuaded or enticed. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, the psalmist says, he saved me. And there we understand that to be a, a, a physical salvation. You know, again, it's, it's one thing to be heard, but it's something wholly different for the person listening to us to actually respond by doing something. There's times, even yesterday, as I'm studying, my kids will say something to me, and I'm hearing them, but they're frustrated because I'm not doing anything. I mean, I'm doing something. I'm doing what I feel like I need to be doing. I'm, I'm not doing what they want me to do. And, and so I, I quickly see in their eyes, they're very frustrated. Dad, you're not listening to me. But never could we say that of God. God, you're not listening. No, in the case of the psalmist, God not just listens, but he also acts and intercedes on his behalf. He says specifically, the Lord preserves the simple, and that, that picture of, of preservation carries the idea of building a hedge around something or someone. In fact, it's the same sort of language we see in the book of Job. In Job 1, verse 9 and 10, then, the Lord answered, uh, then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? And so it's for good reason later we hear Job as he acknowledges in Job 10 verse 12, quote, you've granted me life and steadfast love. And hear this, and your care, your care has preserved my spirit. There was a hedge around Job. That was God preserving him, keeping him. And this is the same very theme in Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Again, we need to be reminded of these things. And it's good that we're reminded because these, these truths, these verses remind us or offer us such incredible encouragement. Particularly for those of us who are are going through turbulent times. Even over these last couple years, this, is, this has been a promise. I need to be reminded of God is keeping me. It's God who's keeping me. Not hand sanitizer, not masks. It's God who's keeping me. God is watching out for me. And I do things where I'm really going to test that. Hopefully I've grown out of that at 44 years old, but then we move into the point as a parent that we pray that God keep my kids as you kept me. That's the third benefit, the benefit of being kept or preserved. Benefit number four, the benefit of being rested. I wish we had more time to, to unpack these more fully. Number four, the benefit of being rested. Look at verse seven. Psalmist says, return, O my soul, to your rest. That's some internal self-talk. It doesn't, that didn't originate 21st century. The psalmist, even at a, at a heart level, oh, my soul, return to your rest. And, and there the sense is this, this sense of internal peace. Calm down, soul. <laughs> Why? For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. You know, in a sense, he says, the Lord is, has treated me so well. 
far better than I deserve. So, so soul, calm down, because God has given you so much. And women, nothing brings a greater sense of rest and peace to the human soul than knowing that it's being kept safe. And what a calming balm that truth is for the anxious human soul. Because God's doing all those things and more, we can stop being anxious. In fact, we should stop being anxious. It's, it's silly, it's ridiculous, the way we burn ourselves out. When the reality is all that worry did nothing but try and chip away at the faith that God so sovereignly and wonderfully preserves. And for the psalmist, he knows that he doesn't have to try and burn himself out, trying to protect himself and preserve his own life. No, he knows God has got this. And more importantly, God has got me. He's keeping me. So I don't have to be anxious. I can experience a peace that the rest of the world does not know anything about. That's the fourth benefit, the benefit of being rested. Benefit number five, the benefit of being delivered. Being delivered. Look at verse eight. He continues, For you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. And herein lies the answer to the psalmist's prayer back in verse 4. Remember verse 4? We were there not too long ago. Oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Deliver my soul, Lord. But here in verse 8, he says, you have delivered my soul. And the psalmist here actually identifies three specific ways in which God has delivered his people. Number one, the psalmist says, you've delivered my soul from death. That speaks of deliverance from physical suffering. And God oftentimes does that. Number two, you've delivered my eyes from tears. That's deliverance from emotional suffering. And number three, you've delivered my feet from stumbling. And and that essentially is deliverance from spiritual stumbling or suffering. As we make our way along the path of our spiritual journey, God is sovereignly keeping us on that path. And because of that, the psalmist then says, and this is where we begin to get into that second element, the response to these benefits. He says in verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Here we read of the psalmist's promise and commitment to the Lord because of everything that Yahweh had done for him. In a sense, he says, because the Lord has extended my life, in a sense, I'm going to spend every single one of my so-called extra days, extra months, extra years, just loving him and serving him and, and living for him so that I might ultimately glorify him among the rest of creation. That's essentially the, the psalmist's vow there in verse 9. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. He's saying because God has been faithful to me, I will now seek to be faithful to him and I'm going to not just do it at a private level, not just behind closed doors, but I'm going to do that before everybody who's drawing breath like I'm drawing breath so that I might be a testimony to, to who God is. David expresses the same sort of sentiment in Psalm 56, beginning in verse 12, he says, I must perform my vows to you, O, Lord, o God. I will render my thanks, off, thank offerings to you. Verse 13, for you've delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. Why? Why would God do that in David's life? Well, he says, so I might walk before God in the light of life. And women, our our deliverance as the people of God ought to result in our glorifying God with our redeemed lives. All those so-called extra days, and, and we'll probably never know how many extra days we had this side of heaven. If things had simply turned out differently, if, if God hadn't intervened. Psalmist says, I'm going to use every extra moment I have to praise him, to celebrate him, to bring glory to God's great name. That's the fifth benefit, the benefit of being delivered. 
The sixth and final benefit we see here, the benefit of being grounded. The benefit of being grounded. And that's grounded, namely, in terms of our faith. Look at verse 10. He says, I believed, even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. Or translated, I am greatly crushed. And here we actually find an interesting combination. You find, on one hand, a profession of faith, but on the other, it's paired with an admission of pain. And the Apostle Paul actually quotes this very verse in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13, amidst his calling the believers in Corinth to walk by faith rather than by sight. Prior to that, Paul wrote those familiar words beginning in verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And yes, from a larger biblical perspective, it's actually the Lord who continues to sustain our faith and trust in him. The psalmist acknowledges he, he chooses to believe in God, and yet God is the one who's calling the psalmist to believe in him and trust in him. And we see this in, in texts like Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. Paul commands us to, quote, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And in a sense, you stop there, the onus feels like it's on us. You do that. But then Paul quickly brings it full circle by saying, verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's describing God there as being the one who enables and empowers us to carry out all that he commands of us. It's him and only him who produces in us as believers the ability, even the desire to live righteous lives. Even when we're making our way down a difficult path, even when we're in the midst of a temporary state of absolute personal misery, God is the one grounding us. And from what we read in our text in Psalm 116, the pressures that surrounded the author externally, well, they weren't injuring his belief or convictions internally. They were shaping it, but they weren't destroying it. And it's important we see that. In fact, coming back to our text, verse 10 actually helps us to see that it isn't a lack of faith that caused the psalmist to suffer, not by any means. That's the sort of garbage taught by the health and wealth prosperity gospel. If you're suffering, you just don't have enough faith. That's not it at all. Nor does it demonstrate a lack of faith when we as Christians acknowledge that we're hurting. We're distressed. I heard once of a funeral and somebody was, was up front. They began to cry and somebody carelessly came to them at the end of the service and they thought, said, I thought you believed in God. I thought you trusted in him. How cold. Even more so, what a tremendous misunderstanding. God doesn't keep us from suffering. No, he uses suffering in a wonderful, marvelous way. It indeed can be, indeed often is, both and in our hearts and lives as believers. The experience of faith matched with affliction. And women, if you get one thing from the message this morning, get this, that we as Christians do not have to walk around like detached robots or unemotional zombies acting like the experiences and trials of life don't affect us. Doesn't hurt me. I'm not overwhelmed. Because you certainly don't read that in the Psalms. You don't read that in any of Scripture. No, rather you get this picture, I'm afflicted and yet God is keeping me and preserving my life. 
and is grounding me in my faith. He goes on in verse 11, the psalmist says, verse 11, I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. Because of the anonymity of this psalm and its author, there's, there's some confusion as to what the psalmist is alluding to here. He's, he's either referring to the false or hollow promises of others to be with him during times of trouble. You know, in that sense, you lied to me. You weren't with me. And this happens oftentimes as we go through hard times, we see uh, fake friends just kind of fall by the wayside. And that may be what he's saying there. Or another feasible option is that the psalmist is simply alluding to the human philosophies or vain counsel that non-believers may have offered him. Right? Possibly calling him to just look to yourself, trust yourself, rely on your own strength, pull yourself by, up by your own bootstraps. But whatever it is, the psalmist, in a sense, doubles down on his commitment to following God rather than trusting man. Why would I trust man? All mankind are liars. They're two-tongued. And they're empty promises of assurance. They're hollow forms of solution. It's really no solution at all. It just dumps gas on the fire. Instead, as the psalmist says in Psalm 118, verse 8, It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Proverbs 3, verse 5, one of the first texts I ever memorized as a child. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Verse 7, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. The psalmist is laying out and really layering these six different benefits. And he could go on and we could go on. And we could add to the list benefits of belonging to God. But it's at this point in the psalm, beginning in verse 12, that the focus now shifts from what God does for his people to how we can respond. And, And we see that marked by this repeated phrase, I will, I will. Look at verse 12. He asks this question, and it's really a setup for the remainder of the text. Verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? And it's natural for us as human beings to want to return good for good, to to try and give back to the one who's given us so much. Now, truth be told, there's nothing we could give to God that he doesn't already possess, right? Psalm 50 tells us, Yahweh proclaims, every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. And so we could try and give back to God in a sense, but we're just returning what he's given us. But that being said, God still delights in a response of thanksgiving and praise when we offer it to him, both in terms of our words and our deeds. The psalmist considers all these benefits and he says, what shall I render to the Lord? What can I give back? What can I do for him? And he then answers The question in verse 12, the the question in verse 12, he answers it beginning in verse 13. He says, I will, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. The first response of the psalmist is that of gratitude. The, The cup of salvation is a phrase that's only used right here in the Old Testament. And it's most likely a reference to the drink offering described in, in, in Leviticus 23. It was to be an expression of thanks from God's people to all, for all that Yahweh had done, especially in his physical and spiritual salvation. And women, all that we think and say and even pray as believers ought to be marked by that very thing, by a heartfelt appreciation for everything that God is and everything that he's done in and through and all around us. There's times where I'll catch myself rushing before the throne room of God. I need, I need, I need. And I feel myself just stop. Remember, you've been here before, and God's been good, and he is good. And so why don't we start by simply saying thank you. Last time I came to you, Lord, you answered that. Thank you. In fact, Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians 5, we're to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
He goes on to say, verse 14, I will repay my, I will pay my vows to the Lord. And that includes the vow he had made back in verse 9. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The first response is that of gratitude. Second response is that of obedience. In a sense, the psalmist says here in verse 14, by the grace of God, I will follow through on every one of my commitments to him. If he gives me the power, if he keeps my focus, I will be faithful to that. I will be faithful to him. John 14, verse 15, Jesus tells us that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And John, the beloved disciple, he echoes that very thing in 1 John 2, beginning in verse 3, wherein he tells us, and by this we know that we've come to know God if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That second response is that of obedience. Third response of the psalmist is that of servitude, or what you might call sacrifice. Look at verse 15. He says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. This familiar verse is the answer to the age-old question, maybe a question you've asked before. Doesn't God care when his people die? Does he care? Does he even notice? See, here in verse 15 of Psalm 116, we're reminded that God does care. He in no way sees the lives of his beloved saints and servants as simply being disposable. In fact, there's a bit of irony here in verse 15 due to the fact that the one writing these words had himself been delivered from death by the Lord. Does God see? Does God know? Does God care? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a precious thing in the eyes of God. He goes on to say, verse 16, as one of those saints, one of those servants, verse 16, O Lord, I'm your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. He says, you have loosed my bonds. Those bonds were the bonds of his affliction, as well as the the snares of death that he had mentioned back in verse 3. Having been delivered from a sheer death sentence, and having been given new life, the psalmist now acknowledges his total commitment of himself to the Lord. This is just like Paul in in Galatians 2.20, as he describes, as he lays out his self-view of his own life. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20, Paul then turns the focus upon us, wherein he reminds us, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Men and women, having been freed from our enslavement to this temporal world and to our own flesh, You and I are now able to wonderfully and sacrificially serve God and his kingdom. Verses 17 to 19, the psalmist repeats his previously mentioned commitments. Verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord, verse 18, in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, that would have been the the assembly of God's people in your midst, O Jerusalem. This is precisely why God does everything he does in our lives as his people, so that we might in turn offer him thanks, so that we might commit our very lives to him, so that we might sacrifice everything so that he would be glorified so that his eternal kingdom would be proclaimed. So that God would use us, us, to bring himself glory and honor and praise. 
Listen, God intends for every life that he redeems and transforms to be a vivid testimony within creation of his faithfulness and his greatness. Which is why Paul tells us in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, and we've considered some of those mercies this morning, I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's how we're to live. That's how I want to live. I want to see my life given away for the kingdom. And I know full well many of you do as well. That's why we gather together on a Sunday morning on the Lord's Day to encourage each other to keep going so that we might see God's kingdom continue to move forward and so that glory might be brought to his name. Not so that we might have pleasurable lives, not so that we might be admired, but so that God would be glorified. The psalmist concludes with these simple words, really a command, praise the Lord. Having proclaimed his devotion and adoration for the Lord, the psalmist concludes by inviting us as his listeners to do the same. Isn't that true? If we, if we truly love the Lord, we, we want to ultimately see others love the Lord. And when we cherish the Lord, we, we want others to cherish him as well. And when we see the Lord as being glorious, we so desperately want others to see God as glorious as well. So in closing, it's natural for us as human beings to love those who love us, isn't it? But with that being said, there's simply nobody who loves us more than the Lord. David declares in Psalm 36, verse 5, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. And let me be very clear about this. The greatest demonstration of God's great love for us is the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. In 1 John 4, 9, we're told in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, Paul tells us, All the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why through him, it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Christ and you are indeed in him, it is my privilege to tell you that you have one of the greatest guarantees in this life. You are guaranteed all of God's blessed benefits and privileges, past, present, and future. But if you are not in Christ, none of this applies to you. Yes, you experience the general grace that is poured out on the world, but you don't know God like the psalmist knows God. But let me also say it is our desire for you to know him. It's our desire that you would love God, that you would see him for who he truly is, and that you would be blown away by that, and that you would consider Jesus Christ, who willingly laid down his life, who became sin, the perfect lamb, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And women, it is our deep desire that you would know God, and that you would love him, but even more so, that you would know that he loves you. Psalm 116 is a catalog of God's divine benefits and blessings. I would hate to think that anybody here would miss out on those. The psalmist himself is absolutely overwhelmed by the goodness of the Lord, and I hope and trust that you've been overwhelmed this morning as we've considered these things. God wants us to depend upon him and any and all matters, particularly because he alone can offer us what we truly want and what we so desperately need as individuals. Our lives as God's people ought to reflect such a gratitude to him, one that goes way beyond lip service. And so, 
in light of every good and gracious thing that he's done for us. May we love the Lord. May we follow his leading in our lives. And may we serve him faithfully with all our hearts for our highest good and for his highest glory. Let's pray. Father God, it is our deep desire that people, that sinners would come to you. But you want that more than we ever could. And your heart is good. And every one of us who belongs to your family could so easily come up and bear witness to that. We pray, Lord, that we would not just keep that testimony for a Sunday morning, but that we would be so blown away by everything that you've done for us and everything you are doing for us that we wouldn't be able to help but give you glory and to proclaim the goodness and greatness of your great name. Lord, use these words to stir hearts and use it to call people to salvation in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen.